0: Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, it's August IFRS news and today we're just going to talk about one issue and that's IFRS 13, which is fair value. I'm joined today by Andreas Ohl, who is one of our US PWC partners. He leads on valuation and he's also a member of the International Valuation Standards Council. So that's very exciting. Welcome to the podcast studio, Andreas.
1: Hi, Ruth. Happy to be here.
0: So, lots of our accounting standards under IFRS require a fair value measurement. And a number of years ago, the ISB issued IFRS 13, which gave us a single framework of how to measure fair value. It's currently going through its post-implementation review, and there's actually a request for information out with comments due on the 22nd of September. So what we're gonna cover in this podcast is we'll talk about basics, what is fair value, what are some of the models you can use, and then we'll just also touch on some of the questions that we can receive in the request for information. Let's start at the very top. What is fair value?
1: Fair value is the price that is uh, to be received to sell an asset or to transfer a liability, an orderly transaction between market participants at the measurement date. Okay. That's a mouthful. That's a mouthful.
0: That's what the standard defines it. So let's yes. break it down. That is like an exit price. It all talks about selling an asset, transferring a liability. What does it really mean? What is an exit price?
1: That's right. It is a, an exit price notion. That's why the word sell or transfer is in there as opposed to price paid to acquire, which would be an entry price, which is how a lot of people thought about fair value previously, so the, the price that you would agree to transact at. So an exit price is, in fact, what you would get if you were to sell or transfer the asset to a, a market participant, again, in, a, in an orderly transaction at the date in which your are uh, that, that's your measurement date for, uh, for financial reporting purposes. So in many cases, they're not all that different, but there are some nuances you get into in practice as we'll get into as we work through the model.
0: Okay, so first of all, we need to concentrate on an exit price. The other thing you mentioned there, and it's also in the definition, is this concept of market participant. And I know definitely when the standard first came out, I had lots of discussion around who really is the market participant. If I'm transacting, can I assume I am that market participant? Have you got any advice on that?
1: Sure, practice has definitely evolved in that area. And yes, since particularly if you're looking at things like business combinations where you just entered into the transaction, you clearly are a market participant since you executed the transaction. So I think the thought process people would typically go through is who are some of the other players that would be interested in that asset, maybe other bidders in that particular process, or if you were to turn around and sell that asset, who would you look to as potential buyers? And in many cases, their characteristics are very similar to, to you. The one nuance I might point out is just that if you're a strategic buyer, so a corporate, you know, in some cases the market participant might actually be a a private equity, which could cause you to look at some things a little differently as you work through the model.
0: Okay, so the idea is the model is not supposed to be entity specific. You're supposed to look at the market and see who else might transact.
1: That's right. You certainly wouldn't get want to get to a place where you defined yourself as the market participant and used fundamentally different assumptions than other potential buyers of that asset would use.
0: Yeah. So I think the last bit of the definition there was it talked about an orderly transaction. What does that mean?
1: So, an orderly transaction really means that it's not a coerced transaction, so that there's a transaction process that allows for enough time for parties to perform proper diligence. Again, we're talking about this in, in the mergers and acquisitions context, but that as of the measurement date, the market participants would have had enough time to do whatever they needed to do to understand the asset in question enough that whatever offer they would make would represent kind of all the available facts and circumstances.
0: So I think we now have an understanding of the definition, what is fair value? Is there a series of steps people can go through when they're doing a fair value measurement?
1: Sure, there's a number of things you want to think about. It's not quite a cookbook <laughs> um, because uh, you know there's an element of art and science to uh, fair value measurements, but... I think maybe the most important thing is you have to identify what it is you're valuing. In some cases that might be obvious, in other cases you may be acquiring or valuing something that has a number of component parts, and some areas of the accounting standards may tell you you need to break those apart and value each piece separately. Or if you're buying a group of financial assets, sometimes that's viewed as an individual share, other times as a group. So. The accounting model will tell you what to do there. Then you have to think about who are the market participants, how would they use the asset, how would they think about value. You'd want to think about what's the market in which you would transact. Again, in many cases that might be obvious. For many assets there is only one market, but other times there may be multiple markets and you need to apply the model to uh, determine which one of those markets you should be considering in coming up with your fair value measure. Once you've done all of that, then you actually.
0: Got to do the hard work. (laughs) Got to do
1: the hard work and actually do the measurement, which involves selecting what's the proper valuation technique or group of techniques, obtaining all the necessary inputs, and then actually doing the computation itself.
0: And the standard, I think, talks about three different methods. Could you talk us through those different methods?
1: Yeah, broadly there's three methods that are used in practice and then under those methods there's a whole bunch of specific techniques that the people apply. So we have a market approach which basically says I can go out and acquire evidence of what the same or similar assets have traded for or are currently there's a quoted price for if it's a very liquid asset. There's an income approach, which is a cash flow model that will come up with a uh, value. And then there's a cost approach, which is basically the idea that you should never pay more for an asset than what it would cost you to reconstruct that asset. So that's the, uh, that's the cost approach.
0: And is there a favoured approach or is there a hierarchy? You have to do one first.
1: Well... The, the approach you would use, and in some cases you might use more than one, is really dictated by what's the asset and what kind of information is available. So you always want to maximize observable inputs, which would tell you that in many cases, if a lot of data on the, the value of the asset is available from the market, that's going to push you towards a market approach. You you also want to consider just there's there's a lot of industry practice out there around which models work best in which circumstances. I think the IBSC standards actually have some pretty good guidance on how to think about circumstances where each of the three models work best.
0: Yeah, I work in a lot of business combinations intangibles. I definitely see, see the income approach used a lot because you don't have that market data necessarily. That's right. And so you also mentioned there that actually sometimes it's good to do more than one approach is yep. Is that a good method to always adopt
1: If you can use multiple approaches it's a great way to calibrate whether your primary approach is giving you a reasonable value to the extent that uh, you're able to to do more than one approach that's always encouraged and you know if you end up with a meaningful difference between the value that the two different approaches are implying that tells you you know you shouldn't just average those or throw one away and use the other one you really should be looking at them again and saying is there something i need to do in terms of the inputs most likely to make that the gap between the two approaches to narrow that yes
0: yeah, so i think doing more than one you get a good benchmark at least to see are you on the right track with your with yes. your measurements um you also mentioned there the cost approach From my experience I tend to see that used the least out of the approaches. Is there is there a time when the cost approach is a really good way of coming up with fair value?
1: Sure. You see the cost approach a lot for tangible assets, particularly ones not airplanes or forklifts, so things that you can't that aren't somewhat generic that you can buy and sell on dealer markets. So think about if I were valuing a steel mill or something like that often the cost to recreate that then adjusted for the current condition and adjusted for where, where does that piece of equipment lie relative to what a new state-of-the-art piece of equipment would look like. So there's, there's a number of adjustments you make. The, the other place that you commonly see the cost approach is for very early stage technology where it's just so far away from being commercialized that performing a cash flow model, it's very difficult to get comfortable with the uh, inputs. The last place I think you see it is if you have other assets such as technology or brands that are clearly the most important and now you're valuing a less significant asset, say a customer relationship and you can't use a cash flow model because you have used cash flow models to value the more important assets. Sometimes you might use a cost-to-recreate type model for, uh, for customers in that circumstance. But, okay. uh, so it has its place yeah. <laughs> in practice.
0: Okay, so if I'm the user of financial statements, how can I see what has actually been put into the model, the inputs and things like
1: that? Sure, I mean there's certainly a number of disclosures that are required and there's a fair value hierarchy, levels 1, 2 and 3, and level one, obviously, you're getting the data from the market. The the other two, you're using inputs that are to the extent possible from the market. And that's where you can get some insights into what kind of assumptions went into uh, coming up with the fair value measure and certain sensitivities around those inputs. Uh, obviously, the, the more fair value measures a company has, the more just in order to keep the annual report from looking like a phone book they have to do some element of aggregation and in that maybe more difficult to tell sometimes what all the inputs are just because they have so many measures that they can't do it instrument by instrument
0: so that brings us really helpfully on to the requests for information that's out at the moment like i said comments in by the 22nd of september one of the things the board has observed by speaking to stakeholders is this point around disclosure. You mentioned aggregation, people have talked about that the actual requirements of the standard are burdensome and sometimes they get generic disclosure. What are your views on that?
1: So, disclosure, as I just said, is a bit of a challenge because it varies dramatically across the industry in terms of how many measures do companies have. And even if you only have a few measures, there's certain models that have lots of inputs and the model is sensitive to many of them. And then there's other models where, yes, there's dozens of inputs, but at the end of the day, there's three or four that the model is truly sensitive to. And because you have such a wide array of fact patterns in the real world in terms of types of things you're valuing, how frequently you value them, how important the inputs are, how judgmental the inputs are, that I don't think there is a one size fits all that if everybody just disclosed it this way, every you know, users would have perfect information.
0: The other thing the request for information talks about, which I almost want, uh, thought about keeping away from, because we could have a whole 20 minutes just on this, is the exposure draft that came out in 2014, which we like to call P times Q, the P times Q debate, which is really a unit of account issue. Can you try and summarize that in a, and tell us what is the P times Q debate about?
1: Yep. So P times Q is price times quantity. And the idea is that if you have a uh, observable price for something, well, then the fair value is very simply that price times the number of that something that you have equals uh, equals fair value. So it seems pretty straightforward that if I own 10 shares of a publicly traded company, that the fair value of that on the balance sheet date is 10 shares times whatever the closing price was on that day. Where that gets more challenging is what do I do if I own a couple million shares of a publicly traded company? And by the way, those couple million shares translate into a 70% ownership interest. And so now it's a consolidated subsidiary. Should I do P times Q when I do my goodwill impairment testing, or should I, in fact, take into account that, well, no, it's a controlling position, and the price that I can look up from the stock exchange is a non-controlling price, and therefore maybe the value of what I hold is is different because my unit of account is no longer the share. My unit of account is the investment, the subsidiary, whatever you want to call it that's just one example there's other examples of what happens if i own publicly traded stock and debt in the same company and you know so i view it as an investment as opposed to you know i own individual shares and individual bonds so if i'm a an investment fund for example and so i have investment in company x as opposed to i have a thousand shares and 12 bonds or whatever it might be so Similar to the disclosure issue, I think you have this challenge that there's a lot of different fact patterns, and P times Q works great in certain circumstances, and others, it's not quite so clear. And typically, it's the unit of account thing at the end of the day that really dictates. Is the unit yeah. of account the share or the bond, or is it something something greater?
0: Yeah. It'll be an interesting debate to see what comes out of the request for information there, because that's something that we've been talking about for a long time now. Probably just last thing to touch on is the request for information also then talks about areas of significant judgment within the standard. It picks out a number of things. One of the things it says is how judgmental is what they define as an active market? Do you get that question a lot as
1: well? We see the active market question quite frequently. And it, it isn't, frankly, even only just in pure fair value measurement that comes up when you're looking at value of stock options in early stage companies where there may be some very limited OTC trading and to what extent do very small transactions then have to be used for purposes of your stock option accounting, for example. So this this comes up in lots of different circumstances. It's not just this whole question of do I have a level one price or don't I, which is the common thing people think of with active. So it, it's certainly a, a very judgmental area. You have a number of different things to think about. How many, I'm assuming it's shares for the moment, how many shares are traded? How, how frequently are they traded? Is it primarily insiders that are trading or is it actually market participants? Has the trading pattern changed? And you know, it used to be traded a lot. Then now it's not traded so much anymore. So you know, all of those things go into that that assessment. But I think maybe the more important thing, in terms of, is not even whether the trading volume is sufficient for it to be active or not. If you have some sort of trading volume, you can't ignore that price. That doesn't mean you have to do p times q with it necessarily, but. You can't just go to a model and say, "Well, I'm going to ignore that because it's not an active market." So that's no longer an input. That's yeah. a classic example of I have a model, and now I do have some market data, and I have to be able to reconcile the two, even if it's not an active market. It, it is an indication; it is a data point of of fair value that I need yeah. to factor into my it's still an uh, observable input. Yes, I have you to factor ignore. into my process
0: that's really helpful Andreas and I think we're coming to the end of our 20 minutes together any sort of final if you had one dream for IFRS 13 is there anything that you would change just to put you on the spot
1: (laughs) well I I think sometimes lost in all the detail of the defined terms and the like in the standard is that to me, what's important to users is really understanding what is it that the fair value measure is sensitive to. And for many, many things, there are a small number of inputs that the model is truly sensitive to. And figuring out how you best communicate that information, I think, is ultimately the, the key. Um, and not getting lost in, you know, maybe all the different defined terms as we yeah. as we often do in accounting standards. And so ticking
0: off the long list. That's <laughs> right. Pleasure. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that was useful uh, to our listeners. We talked about what is the definition of fair value, some of the methods you use, and then just really focusing on some of the standard setting activities. So what is in the request for information? If you'd like more information on Fair Value, please visit pwc.com forward slash IFRS and stay tuned for more IFRS topics coming up. So I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. Happy Accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by Price Wardhouse Coopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.